We are in Mark. Once again, we'll be in Mark chapter 8. We'll be going through uh, verses 34 through uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1. And as you're turning there, for for just a second, uh, imagine this scenario with me. Imagine that life is just like it is now, with just one exception. Sacrifices were made normal again. Animal sacrifices, it was not out of the ordinary. In fact, it was completely normal to sacrifice a lamb. That would be a a crazy reality for us because it's been so long since that has been a a custom and culture. But but just for the the sake of what we're discussing this morning, imagine that with me. Uh, So much so to the extent that even our kids are used to these animal sacrifices and a lamb being sacrificed to God as a form of worship and sacrifice and devotion. And so our our kids are used to this, we're used to this, and then uh, imagine with me that one day I wake up and God speaks to me and says, I'm asking you to sacrifice your son, Ellis. You just saw him up here. I gave him a few options. I'm like, hey, you can go with Pop or Chris or Andrew or go on the lawn, or I guess you can come up with me. He's like, I'll go up with you, Dad. I'm like, okay. He has what he refers to as his sandy blonde hair, I'm still really confused by that because I thought in science in middle school, I learned that darker hair was like a dominant gene, but none of my kids, except for the adopted one, have have dark hair. So anyway, his (laughs) sandy blonde hair, and God tells me, you're going to, you need to sacrifice your only son. And so we're we're used to sacrifices, and so I don't really know what's happening, but I, I trust somehow that God's going to provide something else. So I'm going to take the steps forward. So I look at Ellis one Saturday morning. I say, hey, buddy, we're going to go make a sacrifice. He doesn't think twice because he's used to this. I said, I need you to go help me get, get some wood together. We're going to put it in the back of my truck, and then we're going to go. And so he's gathering the wood with his little four-year-old muscles and bringing them up to me. And then I lift him up onto the bed of the truck, and he puts them in there. We put the knife in, and finally it's time to go. And I'm stressed, and I'm anxious, but I'm trying not to show it. And we've got everything loaded and ready. And so I look at him in the eye somberly, and I say, Ellis, go say bye to your mother. And so he does. He has no idea what's going on. He comes back. I lift him up into the truck. He has to get in the car seat, and he, he's able now to do the, the top little buckle on the car seat, but not the bottom part. So I help him with the, the bottom part. He does the top on his own, and we start driving, and, and he's not thinking anything of it. This is just a, a fairly normal Saturday where a sacrifice is going to be made. He's used to this, and we start driving up toward, towards Mingus Mountain because in this scenario we're describing, that's where you would make a, a sacrifice like this. And it takes about 30 to 45 minutes. And on the way, he asks to listen to music. This kid loves music. He'll sit there and listen to the same song literally all day long. And right now, it's the song Seven Nation Army again and again and again. And normally, I'm like, please, anything else. But I don't care today. So we listen to that song. And every mile that passes... My heart is just welling up. The, the tears are starting to, to come to the front, but none are dropping out yet. Finally, which is what I want. I do not want this drive to end, but finally we get there. Uh, most of the way up the mountain, but as far as we can go. And so we get out of the truck. I hop out. I open the door slowly. And then I open his door. He's not thinking anything. Then I help him out of his car seat, and then he jumps out of the truck to me. He loves to just jump and go for it. He hasn't fallen yet, but I'm a little nervous. He might at some point. He jumps, 
I grab him, I set him down, we pull everything out of the bed of the truck, and I say, all right, bud, let's go. And then he gets this confused look. He goes, Dad, where's, where's the lamb? And I have to look away at this point. He's over here, but I can't look. And now that first tear does start to drop and, and drip out of my eye. And I, I just look away so I don't have to look him in the eye and say, buddy, God will provide. And so I, I just walk in front of him now. I grab the wood. I grab the knife. I grab everything we're going to need. And I just start walking. I say, hey, stay close. And he's asking all kinds of questions. I said, buddy, let's just, let's just walk in silence. I can't really talk anymore. Thank God the wind starts howling and it's getting loud. There's trees and forests all around us. And I'm walking deliberately really slow. But just slow enough that he can't catch me because I have to keep my eyes in front of him. We walk. The walk takes about 30 minutes. Finally, we, we get at the top, this plateau of sorts. And you see this, this big stone slab about the size of this table. And I'm looking at it and thinking, God, where, where, where is God at this point? God, what are you doing? God, why would you demand this? I don't understand. I've had faith to this moment, but I have to think you're going to do something at some point, And you haven't. And I'm trying not to lose it. And we get up there, and, and Ellis is looking more and more and more confused, and now there's nothing left to do. And so I, I look at him, I say, buddy, I need you to climb up there. And he looks at me, and a tear rolls down his cheek, and he just takes one step, and then another, and then he looks back. And at this point, I, I can't watch, so I, I turn around, and he starts trying to climb up this, this stone slab, and he can't really make it up very well on his own, but I can't help him. I just can't do that. So I just turn Around And then he climbs up, and he's sitting up, and he looks over. And then you kind of just see this moment where he gives in, and he lays his head down. The, the wind's howling. I'm now losing it. I'm sobbing, and I take one step, and then the next, and I'm just hoping and praying God will do anything. He's good, right? I take another and another. The wind's howling, and then it stops. Almost in an instant, almost like the, the striking of lightning and the sound of thunder, but in reverse. It goes from this howling wind, even on a clear day, it's like that up there often, to silence except for the bleeding of a lamb stuck in a bush. And Ellis looks over and he sees it. And I look over and I see it. And God provided. It sounds like a crazy story, but this is something that happened in, in Genesis chapter 22, and it's going to set the tone for what we're going to talk about, which is hard. It's something that's hard to talk about this morning. It's, it's one of those things that as you read about it in the scriptures, or, or maybe you grew up with God or hearing about God or, or hearing from somebody about God, you go, this, this God doesn't seem to make sense. He can't be good. He can't be faithful. He can't be worth following. And, and this is one of those accounts. I, I want to read it. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And Abraham replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, remember that, we're going to get to that in a second, by myself I have sworn This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Again, we read this account in in Genesis chapter 22. And if you are human or normal, you go, what? What is happening? How could a good God ever do something, require something such as this? What good reason could there ever be for what he asked of Abraham in this moment? It doesn't make any sense if we read it isolated. Doesn't make any sense if we read it as if Abraham and Isaac are the main characters in the story. But I'm actually convinced that it makes a whole lot of sense. And it actually becomes something really beautiful if God is the main character in the story and we are not. Here's the thing, though. And this is why most of us, many of us, I should say, often struggle to understand what's going on. To understand God is good because in our version of the story we call life, we're the main characters. He's not. And from that perspective, the story often doesn't make sense. I want to rewind to Genesis chapter 12 and look at the events that led up to this. And then we're going to see what this story, what this account is actually about. It started in in Genesis chapter 12 when God first made a promise to Abraham. And we read it here. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. In essence, leave everything safe and comfortable and good. You have a bright future there, but you're going to leave that, and I'm going to take you through the wilderness, which is a common theme for God's people. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. By the way, to be made into a great nation, you need to have children, and he's had no children to this point. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, 
and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. After this, time passes and eventually there's no child. Abram's over 75 and, and one night, as I'm sure he's contemplating and wondering, why has God not answered my prayers? Why does God not keep his promises? God takes him outside in the middle of the night and, and wakes him up and he goes out and he looks up and he sees the stars in the sky and God says, do you see that? That's going to be you, your family, your children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I imagine for a second, Abraham goes, yes, good. And then he probably goes, but you've not answered yet. You keep making promises. You speak as if you're faithful and good, but I've not seen anything yet. More time goes on. Years pass. And in this culture and time, the custom was for a a contract, if you will, or a covenant to be made, the the two parties, we'll say two men that were to make an agreement, would would cut an animal in half and and separate the two halves of the animal, and blood would pour in between the two animals, and then the men would walk in between, and the blood would go on their feet. And what they would say is this, may it be so with us, may we be like this animal cut in half with its blood shed, if either of us break our promise. If either of us are not faithful to what we've committed to. This is a normal custom. And so one day God intends to go through this ritual. And so he finds the animal, he splits it in half, the blood pours in between the two parts. He's put Abram to sleep. And then at the last second, he wakes him up and God himself, not Abram, this is not normal. This is where God does something different. God himself wakes Abram up just in time for Abram to see God walk through And what God is communicating is this. May it be so with me, not you. You remember what we read earlier. He made this promise only upon himself. He swore only on himself that Abraham wouldn't be held to this. Only God would be held to his promise. Years continue to pass by and Sarai, Abram's wife, is no longer believing at all. She's struggling Maybe you've experienced that in marriage. It's actually interesting. We often think of our following of Jesus as if it's just an individual thing, even if you aren't married. But it's not. It's communal. It has to do with your family and your friends, your coworkers. It has to do with everybody around you. And Sarai is struggling. It doesn't matter how much faith Abram has. Sarai does not have any at this point. And so God comes around again and promises Abram, hey, you're going to have a, a whole nation from you. Children are going to be born, and you're going to be a blessing to all people. And Sarai laughs in the face of God. And then she does something that we are really good at. She takes matters into her own hands. She reaches out and grasps for control. And what she does in this moment is said, look, I'm old and you're old. We're not going to have kids together. And so she gives Abram, her servant Hagar, to sleep with so that they can have a child and their family name can continue. And she conceives and has a child named Ishmael. And so you think, okay, that's what she wanted. But no, Sarai is now furious and envious and angry and violent, so much so that Abram has to look at his new son and and the servant, Hagar, and and send them away, provide for them, but send them away because it's not safe in Sarai's presence anymore. That's what happens when we lose sight of God's faithfulness and take matters into our own hands, even when it's hard to be faithful. Then finally, Some 25 years after this initial promise, 
We think we've waited a long time, and, and some of you have. But 25 years, God, 25 years ago, God said, hey, leave this land where you're good to go. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have many children. Abram's old at this point. Only then does God provide, and he has his first son. And then we fast forward from Genesis 12, 25 years plus, to however old Isaac is at this point, to Genesis 22, and God says, go sacrifice your only son. But who's the story about? Why did God write Genesis? To tell us about how faithful Abram was? No. Multiple times he got scared and he's like, hey, whoever you are, other kings, Pharaoh, whatever, here's my wife, sleep with her. I just don't want you to hurt me. Like, he's not the greatest of men. None of us are. It's not about him, though. It's not about his righteousness and faithfulness. This is a, an account to show us that God always provides that God always comes through, that it's always worth taking the next step when he's the one that's called you to take it. This is not primarily about Abraham's need for devotion and sacrifice. This is an account about Yahweh's trustworthiness. And that trustworthiness is what makes Abram's and our sacrifice and following and devotion make sense. If God didn't give us these types of accounts in the scriptures where it made no sense, where the odds were stacked against his people, we wouldn't know that he truly is trustworthy in every moment. This leads us to our, our, our passage this morning, Mark 8, 34 through 9-1. And in a minute, I think you'll see why I spent time in Genesis. So I want to read this morning's passage. It says this. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, Here's some more harsh words. The, the Bible's filled with a lot of them. Jesus says, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. By the way, the, the gospel is an announcement. It's not some mystical, spiritual thing. It's an announcement that Jesus would be king, which eventually he was killed with a sign that said king of the Jews. Anybody that loses his life because of me and the gospel, this announcement will save it. Verse 36, for what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Jesus speaking, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So there's a couple things we need to, to key in on here. Jesus brings the crowd together, and then he says, if anyone wants to be my follower, so this is what we proclaim to be a group of people united in a following of Jesus. If anyone wants to be my follower, he gives two requirements. The first is this, he must deny himself. Now, in our English language, there's a lot of speculation of what that could mean. And honestly, this is a really pivotal road in theological terms because depending on how we interpret or understand this word deny, it's going to greatly inform what you think about who God is. You ever have a, a conversation with someone you're, you're really close to, especially if it's a spouse or, or maybe a parent or a really close friend, and there's a misunderstanding? They said something, you heard something, but what they said 
is not what you heard. There's, there's a major disconnect, and maybe days or weeks for, for some people, there's years and years that go by, and because of a misunderstanding, they have such a terrible view of this person, they're no longer in their lives. This happens a lot. And this is one of those moments with what Jesus is speaking where that could happen, and has happened all the time for the church, because from this passage, a great misunderstanding about Jesus, about the Father, occurs. He must deny himself. First off, what deny does not mean. Deny does not mean to take on some form of asceticism, which is simply like embracing extreme religious and spiritual rules, fasting way longer than one should, even self-harm and infliction, only the spiritual, doing all kinds of, going to crazy lengths to experience God. That is not what Jesus is saying when he says deny himself. He's also not saying deny what is good. Jesus came and said, I, I came so that you could have life and have it to the fullest. God is the creator of all good things, from a, a child's laughter to healthy relationships and love, music, the, the most delicious meal. All of the things in life that are good come from the Father. So he's not saying, don't embrace and enjoy the good I've given for you to enjoy. Here's what deny does mean, though. It means don't trust Self. Deny means don't trust self. Deny yourself control. Deny yourself trust of your vision, what you see, what you hear, and what you feel, and believing that it's right. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, and and we talk about this from time to time because it really is the foundation of the scriptures. Even God both look at the same fruit in the garden, and they see two different things. God sees something that if Eve consumes of it is going to lead to knowledge, yes, but a knowledge that's going to draw her away from him, a knowledge that's going to be devastating and destructive. God looks at it and sees that. Eve then looks at it and says, I see that it is good, it's pleasing, and it's going to bring knowledge and wisdom, and and she was right, but it did lead to destruction. See, in that moment, when God and Eve saw different things, Eve denied God. She did not deny self. She trusted what she saw. She did not trust what God declared and saw and spoke. This is what Jesus is talking about. If anyone wants to follow me, they must give up control. They must submit. They must trust my vision and hearing and feeling instead of their own vision and hearing and feeling. That's what to deny oneself means, and that's, that's hard. Here's the other thing. Deny does not always mean, but often will mean suffering. Jesus is really clear that Christianity and suffering, not Christianity and comfort, go hand in hand. One day he will reign as king on earth and all will be made well, but he took on the utmost of suffering for our sake, and often our lives are going to be filled with that as well. He'll get us through that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Christianity and suffering, not Christianity and comfort, often go hand in hand. That's a big reason, maybe one of the biggest reasons in our nation, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, looks at a rich man, and the rich man says, what do do I need to do to follow you? He says, give up everything. And eventually he talks about how challenging it is for a rich man to follow Jesus. Maybe to the same degree, it's challenging for us in our wealthy, wealthy, wealthy context. Even the poorest of the poor in our country are the richest of the rich in the world. And we like comfort. It's hard to give that up. 
We continue. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, one, and two, take up his cross and follow me. I think this is actually one of the most misunderstood things in the scriptures. I was processing it as I was studying this week, and I'm like, what does that actually mean? We've, to some degrees, almost over-spiritualized and glamorized the cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? Maybe we think of it like, do some hard things in the name of Jesus. Now, I think that we're really quick to forget that when Jesus spoke these words, there was absolutely nothing, not one good thing about a cross. There were no songs that were sung about crosses that we worship God with. Nobody had a tattoo of a cross on their tricep. There were no churches filled with crosses. Crosses were a symbol of the power of the empire to do whatever they wanted, to rape, pillage, and plunder, to not only uh, perform or uh, perform an execution as a means of causing death, but more than that, to literally attempt to rip the soul, the pride, to bring the utmost shame to an individual. This is why a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified legally, because it was way more than just death. There's nothing at all good about a cross. Be like today, and this doesn't even do it justice, but like if somebody had a, uh, an electric chair tattooed on their arm, like that would make no sense. Or if in all of our churches and songs, we sung about the great electric chair, like that, that would make no sense. And that doesn't even bring about shame in the same way that a public execution on a cross would. But that's when Jesus spoke this. Like, this is crazier than that, okay? And Jesus looks at the crowd and looks at his followers. You must take up your cross, which has nothing good about it, and follow me. There is this one glimmer of hope, though, in, in Chapter 8, verse 31, just before this, okay? It all is in the same dialogue Jesus is having. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, fully God, fully man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. To, To take up your cross did not mean that every single follower of Jesus would literally take up the cross and walk with it to where they would be crucified. Most of them that heard these words that day were not crucified. Some were, but most weren't. Most weren't martyred. Some were, but not all of them. To take up your cross meant this. The cross, crucifixion, was the worst that that world, Rome, had to offer. This was the ultimate form of punishment, of execution, of shame, of, uh, like I said, ripping the soul out of somebody as they were killed. And Jesus is saying, in order to follow me, you first must deny yourself, not trust your vision, and then step into, embrace, take steps towards whatever it is that is the worst the world has to offer, if that's where I call you. But it isn't just that. Let's read this again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and thank God it didn't end there, and rise after three days. Here's something that we need to understand. To take up your cross means to follow Jesus to whatever the worst the world at the time has to offer, 
and through the worst that the world can throw at you. Jesus walked to the cross and it killed him and then he rose. We need to, to understand that if Jesus calls you to something, he will always lead you through it too. If Jesus calls you to something, even if it's the worst the world has to offer, he will always lead you through it as well because our God is a God that provides. Not in our timing, not when we read the, the story, not when we understand our lives and our breaths that he gave us from our perspective as if we're the main characters, but when we start to understand how truly good he is. That there's not a moment he isn't thinking of you. That there's not a moment that he's not filled with love. That he knows you better than you know yourself and he loves you more than you even love yourself. Which we often say is a whole lot because we love ourselves quite a bit. To take up your cross means to follow Jesus to and through whatever the world has to offer. And if Jesus calls you to something, we can absolutely know he will lead us through it as well. Tim, Tim Keller says this about Mark chapter 8 and 9 in his book, Jesus the King. He says, you can't come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword at a king's feet and say, command me. If you try to negotiate instead, if you say, I'll obey you if, which is oftentimes what we do, we have a lot of if clauses we throw at Jesus, then you aren't recognizing him as a king. But don't forget this, Jesus is not just a king He's a king on a cross. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is also a king with scars, and a king should have scars because scars demonstrate, they symbolize the battles that that king has fought and the battles that that king has won. And our Jesus has fought battles with sin and Satan and death and anything that could be thrown at him. And he is risen victorious. It is better to have a king with scars than a king with no scars. So this passage and Abraham's passage, that makes no sense. Why would God go through that whole ordeal? It wasn't about Abraham. It was always about God's faithfulness. From Genesis 12 through the end of the scriptures, it's always been about how faithful God is. This is not primarily a passage or passages about our need to be devoted and to sacrifice. This is primarily about the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Jesus, which makes our devotion and sacrifice make sense. I remember with uh, certain friends growing up, I'm not going to name any names, my mom would be like, would you follow that person off of a cliff? I'd be like, no, mom. That's dumb. But I do want to go do this. And you apply that to Jesus, and the answer is actually just a resounding yes. I don't, I don't know what he has planned. Oftentimes, whatever the heck Jesus is doing seems awful to me. I go, seriously, Jesus, let's have a talk. I'm, I have some good ideas. I can, I can see into the future a little bit, and I, I think we can do better than kind of where you're leading but am I going to deny self? Are we going to deny our own vision, our own hearing, our own understanding, our own desires, and trust him? Now, in all seriousness, you have to be really careful with that. That's how cults and, and craziness get started, and there's a fine line because many people have proclaimed Jesus says this. So you better be real sure that it's Jesus when he speaks. That's why the body is so important. 
That's why the scriptures are so important. That's why taking time to hear from the Spirit is so important, because in all of those things together, we can actually hear the voice of God, but it needs to be tested. The reality is, though, that sometimes Jesus does call us to crazy places and crazy adventures and and crazy battles, ones we're not capable of getting through, so that we will know it's not us, but he always comes out victorious. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Listen to the the language of exchange here. We're almost done. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. There's a trade. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose another exchange his life? What can a man exchange or give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a trade being spoken of. And I'm fearful that we often, I even do this sometimes, if we don't know Jesus well, we can make the mistake of thinking that what he's calling us to is an awful, terrible trade. That, that if we suffer enough or we give up our lives or we, we give some money or we spend some time in prayer or we do whatever we're doing, quote-unquote, denying ourselves, this is often our, our image of God, that we need to do this sort of thing, then he will love us and we'll get to fly away to this, this place called heaven. That doesn't really sound that great anyway. And that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't saying, prove to me your love and then I'll provide for you. No, remember God walked through the animal by himself. He swore by himself to say, I'm the main character, you are not. This is about me, this is not about you. This is about my love, this is not about yours or the lack thereof. This is about my devotion, not yours. That's the gospel. Last Saturday, we were kind of prematurely celebrating Easter, which kind of felt funny, because technically on Saturday, Jesus is still in the grave. But for my family, Sundays on Easter are a little bit busy. So uh, my kids, my sister and brother-in-law's kids got into uh, my parents' home. My parents did this whole Easter egg hunt all around the, uh, the yard. And they got their baskets, they ran around, they picked up a bunch of eggs, and they came back. And, and my son, Ellis, he's four, he can't read yet, he, he brought all of his little eggs to me, and he'd open them. And when you open them, there's a little ticket that described the prize he could go get from Bama. That's what we call my mom. That's what they call her is Bama. Um, and so I'd read them, and there's like lollipops and chocolate bunnies and a little bit of money or whatever, all these things. And then he gets to his last one, and he pulls it out, and I grab it, and it says, pedicure with Bama. And at first, he's all excited. He's like, yeah! He's a very passionate kid. And then he's like, what's a pedicure with Bama? I'm like, you know what, buddy? Why don't you go trade that uh, with with one of your sisters? And so he goes, and he's going to trade this thing called a pedicure with Bama uh, with his oldest sister, uh, Aaliyah. And so she's going to give him one little lollipop for a pedicure with Bama. And I'm like, hold on, buddy. Come over here. This is a teaching moment. This is about... This is about supply and demand and business and how life works here. You have something she wants. She will probably give you whatever you want out of the basket. She'll probably give you her whole room for a pedicure with Bama. In the economy of Bama's grandchildren, a pedicure with Bama is really, really valuable. And so I'm like, go back and do not settle for one measly lollipop. 
And so he does, and he gets whatever he wants from her. I don't remember what it was. The point is this, though. The exchange that Jesus is describing is not a bad deal. It is an absolute steal. It's something that we do not deserve, and there's no way we should ever be given the life that he's offering. It's the best that humanity has to offer. I mentioned it earlier, but we often talk about becoming human the way we were made to be. God wants what is best for you. God knows what is best for you. And when I say best, I don't just mean spiritual. He wants you to delight in him, in his world, in everything good. The the Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is his plan for us. There there will be suffering along the way. He says also, take up your cross. Be willing to take steps to the worst the world has to offer, but know that if I call you there, I will also lead you not to it, but through it. This exchange is not a really bad trade. Jesus is going, I have incredible plans for you. Trust me, because this is good. We can't make that mistake. We can't think that this is some sort of test that if we accept a terrible trade, God will be pleased. No. He just wants to give you everything. You're still not the main character. He's not going to do it in your timing. You're not going to always understand. You're going to doubt and struggle. And we're going to pull an Eve and a Sarai a lot of times where we grasp for control and power, where we deny him instead of denying self. But no matter how many times we do that, there he is, arms wide open faithful, loving, and devoted, because that's who he is, even though that's not who we are. Let's pray. Yahweh God, I I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you that they don't hold back, that they are filled with darkness and brokenness and all the the worst that this this world has to offer. God, I thank you that in the, the midst of the the brokenness in this world that sin causes and you do allow us to go through, that you never forsake us, that you never leave us, that you always want what is good and one day you will reign fully as king and bring that. God, help us. I'm not strong enough. We're not strong enough even to deny ourselves. Bless us with your spirit to do that, to have eyes that see your truth, to have eyes that hear what you declare is right and hearts that pursue that. This is your story that we're blessed to live in. Lead us and help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Restoration Church. And uh, if this is your first time joining us, welcome. We are so glad that you were able to tune in. And um, to learn more, please go to restorationaz.org. Um, We would love to connect with you, hear from you, see how we can support you or be praying with you. Um, If you're in the Prescott area and you'd like to join us, we gather on Sundays, 8.45 and 10.45 a.m. So until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.